0: Chapter 14. In spite of the good reports and in spite of the good rating that our television show received, at the end of half a year of experimenting in the medium, I began to feel more and more strongly that we were missing one vital ingredient, personal contact. So even before the second series of TV shows was over, I started going out on the streets and talking to boys and girls face to face. As soon as I did, I knew that I had touched the live vital key to effective work with people. Jesus did not have television or the printed word to help him. He was a face to face ministry. Always the warmth of personality was involved. I knew as soon as I returned to my original technique of going out into the streets that this was the method meant for me too. So each morning I closed the door of my headquarters on Victory Boulevard, stepped onto the ferry and then onto the subway, and as soon as I arrived in Brooklyn I simply started talking with the boys I met. Time and again they responded. I could watch the change taking place before my eyes as it had in St. Nicholas Arena. But the more successful my experiences on the street, the more I realized that we had to act on the problem of follow-up. With most of the youngsters, I was satisfied if I got them established in a good local church. But with boys who were in serious trouble, who had no home, some closer form of follow-up was needed. One morning, just after I had stepped off the ferry boat at the foot of Manhattan, I walked down the stairs to the subway that would take me over to Brooklyn. The subway at this point makes a great loop, and in the turn its wheels scream piercingly. This place will always have a special meaning for me because it was there, among the screams of the subway, that I suddenly saw my old dream take on substance. It sprang full-grown to mind, the house I had dreamed of we might call it Teen Challenge Center, would be located in the heart of the roughest part of the city. It would be headquarters for a dozen or more full-time workers who shared my hopes for the young people around us, who saw their wonderful potential and their tragic waste. Each worker would be a specialist. One would work with boys from the gangs, another with boys who were addicted to drugs, another would work with parents, another with the little people. There would be women workers, some would specialize in girl gang members, others with girls who had sexual problems, others with addiction. There in the Teen Challenge Center, we would create an atmosphere so charged with this same renewing love I had watched on the streets that to walk inside would be to know that something exciting was afoot. And here we could bring boys and girls who needed special help. They would live in an atmosphere of discipline and affection. They would participate in our worship and in our study. They would watch Christians living together, working together, and they would be put to work themselves. It would be an induction center where they were prepared for the life of the Spirit In the summer of 1960, after I'd been working full-time in the city for close to a year, I began to talk about my dream aloud. On fundraising trips, I preached about the need among our churches in New York. I painted the picture as I had envisioned it, but always I was met with the same question. Dave, this dream of yours has one flaw. It requires money. This was accurate, of course. We never seemed to have more than $100 in our account at any one time. It took a good hard scolding from Gwynne to shake me free from the fear of launching forth just because we had no money. "'Gwynne came to New York just as soon as the school year was over in Pittsburgh. "'I found a little apartment near the office in Stanton, Island. "'It's not exactly the Conrad Hilton,' I said to Gwynne on the long-distance line. "'But at least we'll be together. Get packed. I'm coming to get you.' "'Darling,' said Gwynne, "'I don't care if we live in the street just as long as we live there together.' "'So Gwen came east. We crowded all our furniture into four rooms again, but we were extremely happy. "'Gwen followed very closely all the moves of the new ministry. "'She was particularly interested in my dream of a working family with a centre of its own. "'David,' she said one night, just after I had complained again about lack of funds, "'you ought to be ashamed. You're going at this backwards. "'You're trying to raise money first, and then buy your home. "'If you're doing this in faith, you should commit yourself to your centre first, David,' then raise your money for it. At first it sounded just like a woman's thinking, but the more I dwelled on the thought, the more it reminded me of biblical stories. Wasn't it always true that man had to act first, often with what seemed a foolish gesture, before God performed his mighty miracles? Moses had to stretch his arm over the sea before it parted. Joshua had to blow some horns before the walls of Jericho fell. Perhaps I had to commit myself to the purchase of a new center before the miracle could come to pass. I got together with my central committee, which was really just a fancy name for the group of six ministers and three laymen, all men of wonderful spiritual vision, who were interested enough in young people to give time to our organization. I told them of the growing need for a home where gang members and narcotic addicts could associate with Christian workers. I told them about Gwen's feeling that we ought to commit ourselves to a place first, then worry about paying for it later. The committee was willing to go along with the idea. "'We can think of it as an open experiment in faith,' suggested Arthur Graves, one of the ministers on our board." This is the sequence of events that immediately followed our decision. On December 15th, 1960, at two o'clock in the morning, while I was deep in prayer, I received the sudden clear impression that there was a particular street in Brooklyn we were supposed to investigate. We knew that our home should be close to the heart of the troubled Bedford-Stuyvesant area, so we had been making our first tentative inquiries along Fulton Street, but now came the name Clinton Avenue. Quickly, I got out a map and located the street. There it was, just a black line on a piece of paper, but I drew a line around it, as if it was already settled, that this would be the future address of the Teen Challenge Center. The next day, I called several of the members of the committee, and we agreed to meet on Clinton Avenue to see what kind of houses, if any, might be available. Before I set out, I called Paul Delina, our treasurer, and asked how much money the organization had in the till. Why? asked Paul. Well, we thought we'd go look at some houses on Clinton Avenue. Jolly, said Paul. Right now, we have a balance of $125.73. Hmm. That doesn't bother you? Not if our experiment works. We'll keep you posted. The very first house we looked at seemed to fit our needs. It was an older building with a decaying for-sale sign out front, and although it was somewhat depressing, at least the price of 17,000 seemed reasonable. An old gentleman showed us around. We actually got to the stage of talking money with him, and the term sounded good. We went back wondering at how swiftly all this had transpired. But when we came back the next day, the old gentleman began to stall. This went on for several days until finally we began to wonder if we were supposed to look elsewhere. So we decided to look at another house on Clinton Avenue that had a for sale sign in the window. I checked the till. We had less than $100 in the bank now. And this time, instead of looking at a $17,000 house, we were talking to the owner of a $34,000 property. His was a nursing home. In many ways, it was ideal for the center. It was completely furnished with beds, offices, accommodations for staff, The man came down on his price, too, while we were talking to him. I was ready to sign up, even though we did have just a hundred dollars in the bank, and even though the place did have a dank institutional feel about it. Before we make any decisions, said Dick Simmons, a young Presbyterian minister who was on our board, I have the key to a house across the street. I think we ought to look at it. How much is it? I asked. Dick hesitated. It's, uh, sixty-five thousand Great, I said. Every time we look at a new house, the price goes up and our cash balance goes down. We were thinking about a $17,000 house when we had $125. We were looking at a $34,000 house when we had $100. Now, we're looking at a $65,000 place. We must have paid some big bills. The $65,000 house was a mansion. I must admit that my heart leapt when I saw it. It was a stately Georgian house built of red brick and just as solid-looking as Monticello. What a shock awaited us, though, when we stepped inside. Never had I seen such a shambles. The house had been unoccupied for two years. For several years before that, students from a nearby college had used it for a combination clandestine flop house and brothel. An old recluse, an old recluse lived in the place now illegally. He was one of these old men who finds his security in accumulated junk, and he had filled every room in the house with newspapers, broken bottles, skeleton umbrellas, baby carriages, and rags. Each morning he set out with an A.M.P. cart, collecting trash from the neighbors' garbage which he would tote back into the house and stash away. Technically, he was a caretaker, I guess, but the owners had long ago ceased to expect anything of him. Most of the water pipes were broken, plaster fell from the ceilings and walls, banisters lolled on their sides, and doors were ripped from their hinges. But through it all, you could quickly sense that this had once been a truly regal home. There was a private elevator going up to the second floor. There was a whole attic of servants' quarters. The basement was dry and sound, as were the walls, We walked through the sad debris, silent until all of a sudden in a loud and clear voice, almost as if we were preaching, Harold Bredesen, our Dutch Reformed pastor from Mount Vernon, said, This is the place! This is the place God wants for us! There was something so commanding about his voice that it had the quality of prophecy. The note of urgency and sureness in his voice lived with me throughout the next days and had a lot to do, I think, with the quality of the experiments we proceeded to make. When Dick Simmons talked with the owners as he returned the keys, he told them frankly that a price of 65000 might be appropriate for the house in perfect condition. But had they seen it lately? The owners came down on their price. Dick talked some more. The owners came down again before he got them to the point where they rather vehemently said, That's our rock-bottom dollar. Dick had brought the asking price down to 42000 So, I asked Dick, so it's a great bargain. We still have $100 in the bank. Actually, I think it wasn't too anxious. I wasn't too anxious to buy the property at 416 Clinton Avenue. There was so much work to do on the building that weeks of labor would be required just to make the place usable. I was so anxious to move ahead with the creative work of the center not to spend time repairing an old building. On the other hand, if we were intended to move into this house, who was I to object? Before I took another step, I wanted to make certain that we were in God's will. So that night, during my prayer time, I placed the question before the Lord. You've helped me know your will in the past, Lord, by giving me a sign. I thought back over the time we asked God's help in deciding whether to take the pastor in Phillipsburg and whether to sell the television set. I'd like to ask permission to put one more fleece before you, Lord. The next day, I went down to Glad Tidings and had a long talk with Mrs. Mar- Mary Brown, co-pastor with Stanley Berg of the fine old church. I took up with her again our needs, our reason for wanting a center, and I described to her the building we had found. David said Mrs. Brown. This has every feel of being right. If you were to buy the building, when would you need the binder? Within one week. Would you like to come down to church Sunday afternoon and make an appeal? I know this isn't a good time in the afternoon and just before Christmas, but you can come if you want to. It was a tremendous opportunity, and I was glad to say I would come, but still I asked God for a miracle. I wanted to know for sure that he was in our plans. I knew that the most glad tidings had ever raised for home missions at a single request was $2,000. We needed more than twice that amount. The 10% binder alone would come to 4200 But Lord, I said that night in prayer, if you want us to have that building, you can let us know for sure by allowing us to raise that in a single afternoon. That was difficult enough, but I went on like Gideon to make things more difficult. And furthermore, Lord, let me raise that amount without mentioning how much we need. I paused. And furthermore, I said... Let me raise it without even making an appeal. Let this be something the people do out of their own hearts. Well, after I'd put all those fleeces before the Lord I felt rather foolish. It was clear that I didn't really want to go into the work filled building, but I'd made the prayer and I waited to see what would happen. Sunday afternoon arrived, the Sunday before Christmas, nineteen sixty. I preached a very simple sermon. Deliberately, I tried to make it just as coldly factual as I could. I stated our problem and our hope, and I told the stories of a few boys we'd already reached. At the end of the service, I said, "'Folks, I'm not going to make an emotional appeal. "'I want this to be of the spirit if it's to be done at all. "'He knows how much we need. "'I'm going to leave now and go down into the basement. "'If it should occur to you that you want to give a certain amount to this work, "'I'd be glad to hear from you.'" And so, slipping out the back way, I went downstairs to the basement "'I sat behind an old pulpit there and began to wait. "'I'll never forget the horror of those minutes as they slipped away. "'I broke out into a cold sweat, which surprised me. "'I had not known until that moment that I really wanted the 416 Clinton Avenue building. "'A minute passed, and there was no sound of steps on the stairs. Two minutes passed. Five. Ten whole minutes went by, and I had given up. "'I was really rather glad that it was all over. "'At least I knew that my fleece hadn't worked. "'And then the door opened. "'At the end of the hall softly. In stepped an old, old lady. She came across the room with tears in her eyes. Reverend Wilkerson, she said, I've been praying for fifteen years for this work to be raised up. Here's ten dollars. It's all I can give. A widow's mite. but I know it will multiply and be greatly used. But before she left the room, the back door opened again, and a fellow propped it wide with a chair, and after that, a steady stream came in. The next person was a lady about fifty years old, and she said, Reverend Wilkerson, I've been paid some money from Social Security. I want to give it to your boys. I was completely overwhelmed. I had never seen anything like that, like what was happening. The next person to come up was a man. He gave us $200. The next gave $300. A little boy came up and said he had only 14 cents, but he said, God is in this. You're getting all I got. Each person seemed to have a specific amount he was supposed to give. A schoolteacher, Pat Rungi, came up and said, David... I don't make too much money, but I do work with teenagers like you do, and I know what you're up against. If you could take a post-dated check, I'd like to donate $25. It took 15 minutes for the line simply to walk through and lay its money on the desk, but each person brought more than just money. He brought encouragement, and above all, he brought a real joy to his giving, so that I felt the joy, too. When finally the last person left, I took the pile of bills and checks up to Mrs. Brown's office, and there we counted it. The amount... $4,400. $4,400. I told Mrs. Brown then about the fleeces I had put before the Lord. She was as excited as I. She kept speaking about the event as a miracle, and over and over again she made reference to the fact that the church had never seen anything like it. She was more convinced than ever that God was in the project. The one thing that I did not confide to Mrs. Brown was my puzzlement over that extra $200. We'd asked for 4200 for the binder, and we'd received 4400 I suppose it was childish of me expecting the miracle to be so neat. But why were we given that extra $200? Was it divine abundance or some celestial overflow of riches? Was it a mistake in addition? Or had someone written a check that he could not pay? None of it proved the case. When all the reckoning was through, it was quite clear that we had simply been given $200 more than we'd asked for. Then a few days later, sitting in my office, I was talking over the final costs of putting down... "'our $4,200 binder with our attorney, Julius Freed. "'You have the check for $4,200, David?' "'I handed it to him with a prayer of thanks. "'Julius moved uneasily in his chair "'as if he had something unpleasant to bring up. "'You know, of course, "'that I'm not charging the center anything for my services.' "'It was a peculiar thing to say. "'Julius was on our board, "'and I'd always assumed his time was a gift to our project.' But the other lawyers have got to be paid, and then there's... What are you driving at, Julius? We're going to need some unexpected money, and we'll have to have the check at the time we put down the binder. How much money, Julius? $200. The rest of the money for the balance of the 12000 down payment we had agreed upon came to us in an equally peculiar manner. The following Sunday at Bethpage, Long Island, a challenged congregation came streaming forward at the close of the meeting and pressed over $3,000 into my hands. The following week, Arthur Graves called me to announce a decision his church had made. David, he said, my board has voted to send me to the closing with a bank check. You can fill it in for the amount needed to close the deal. And that is how it worked out that God provided us with precisely the amount we needed for the creation of the Teen Challenge Center down to the penny we were provided for. On the day we were handed the keys to the beautiful Georgian mansion in Clinton Avenue, I said to my wife, Gwen, you were right. It took a woman to show us the way. Do you realize that within just one month from the time you challenged me to step out in faith, we have raised $12,200? Gwen was as pleased as I. When is the second mortgage due? she asked. Not until next fall, it sounded so far off I had no idea at all the tremendous year that lay ahead of us, a year that would keep us so busy and so dizzy in amazement that the arrival of autumn with its due date on the $15,000 second mortgage would be upon us with devastating swiftness.